0: You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. Yeah, so this morning, I'm really excited, actually, about where we're going. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking... Uh, I'm thinking that walking through a book of the Bible during the summer makes a lot of sense. I, I just, uh, I'm just enjoying 1 John, and if you haven't been here with us for the last couple of teachings, that's where we've been. We've been just walking sequentially through 1 John, and uh, I uh, admit to having sort of neglected this part of the New Testament for a lot of my last few years, and so it's forced me to jump back in, which is pretty fun, um, a couple of things that I want to say about First John before we jump too far into it, and then we will jump right into the text this morning. Uh, the first thing is this, is that First John sort of has this theme threaded throughout it of love, and that's why we, we kind of like have this silly logo that's a heart. But prove it right, and, and and the idea of the series is really that like the proof of Jesus in the world is the way people who follow Jesus live like Jesus and with Jesus, and a lot of times we probably have defaulted a different direction that we could somehow prove God by having the right information or the right set of facts or or if my argument's better than your argument, then, of course, you're going to be convinced that my religion is the right religion and all of these sorts of things. Now, on the other hand, we, we also sort of have talked about the need for rationale. Like, we don't believe this stuff out of thin air. And so we, we certainly affirm this impulse to say, okay, so what can we know about God? What can we know about Jesus But ultimately to say that even those things that we can know about Jesus, the Jesus of history, the Jesus that we believe resurrected from the dead and conquered evil and death, like like whatever we can know about Jesus of Nazareth, all of that really, according to 1 John, has very little weight in the world if it's not actually producing love For, for John Love is the centerpiece of who God is, which we'll see by the time we get to chapter four. He'll literally use the phrase, God is love. And it is from this God of love that everything else that we know about God flows from. And so we've been really trying to wrestle with, okay, so what does it look like to say that love is the center, love is the proof, but at the same time to honor some of the harder passages that John will say, right? So John has colorful language to talk about how this love works itself out. And sometimes it's separatist in nature. There's actually a community of people that John is writing to, or perhaps John's community of friends is writing to as they produce these letters. And in the first century, it seems as though there's a vibrant Jesus community that some people were starting to slip out of. There were some ideas maybe that were slipping into the fold that were claiming things about Jesus that weren't the same understanding of Jesus that the early Jesus followers had when they had started this journey after the resurrection. And so so there's this tension. And so what you're going to hear in today's passage is some of that tension. That for some reason, there are people who are in our community that, not only, like, we're wrestling with their doubts and struggles, right? Like, that's not a problem, I don't think, for John. Like, like, for John, having doubts and struggles and frustrations and questions, that's not a problem. For John, the problem is, some folks have said, not only do we reject these ideas, but we're not going to honor these ideas within the community, so we're going to go away and start our own thing that really is quite different from what the apostles had handed down. And so hopefully when you hear these passages, you don't hear, oh, they had a disagreement, so they split. That's not, that's not, that'd be too simplistic, right? It's like the church that splits over the color of their carpet or the church that splits over decisions that we would say, wow, this feels really arbitrary. Um, That's not what's happening here. For these early Jesus followers, The people who are leaving are distinctly following something that does not look like Jesus. And for John, if it doesn't look like Jesus, it's not going to produce Jesus-like love. At the end of the day, that's the, the challenge of being in this kind of community. This morning, what I want to do is I'm going to say some stuff that pushes against us in multiple directions. And I... I think it's necessary, and it comes to light as we read this passage and some other passages actually in John's gospel, right? And John, we think, is behind a gospel story about Jesus. Uh, It's probably the most unique story about Jesus that we have in the New Testament. It's not really... in sequence in the way that we would expect it to be. Like, it doesn't flow naturally all the time. There's various events that are placed in different places in John. Because for John, John's actually, in his gospel, constructing something that's very uh, rhetorically strategic. So you have, like, seven signs that Jesus will speak of, and they're sequential, right? And you have these seven... um, various sets of seven, like they're just all throughout the book, and what's interesting, you get to the resurrection in John's gospel, and that's actually um, sign number eight, right, and it's almost as if John is trying to say, like, like the world was created in seven days, we have this narrative, right, that's why it starts out, in the beginning was the word, and it talks about creation, and then when you get to the resurrection, it's like, a brand new creation has been launched in the middle of this one. There is a new creation week being launched. So, so John's gospel is very creative, very organized, but very different from the other accounts. And, and it's the same John, we believe, or at least the community around this same disciple that produces this letter. And what you get in both of these is this strong conviction that Jesus is the path. Jesus is the path. I want to talk about Jesus being the path this morning, and, and um, I, I'm going to be really honestly challenging myself here a little bit, but hopefully we come through this and really think some important sort of thoughts about what this means for John, and then wrestle with what that looks like for us. And so I, I, I was thinking about this, and, and in our world, like, we have an increasing worldview that you know, what's good for you is good for you. You know what I mean? And, and I think there's something actually helpful about this. What's good for you is good for you, right? So like, like if you're into that, I can honor that. I can respect that, even if it's not for me, right? Like, I think there's something beautiful about that because in the past, the way culture often worked is um, that is your thing, and it's the wrong thing. Therefore, I'm not going to honor your thing because it's not my thing. And we've had a lot of violence in our world because of that. We've had a lot of um, division in our world because of that. And I think at a social level, getting to a place where we could say, yeah, that's not my deal. But if you're not hurting other humans, okay, like you have a right to hold to what you do. You have a right to be who you are. You have a right to your own traditions, your own ideas, right? And, and respecting that. And in fact, we can be friends and be radically different. Like, way different. I think that as Christians posturing ourselves in that way, that there's a lot of positives to that. One of the challenges, however, is that when we do that without also sitting with the Jesus we see in the New Testament in a very intentional way, our temptation is to relativize Jesus himself. That, that's the challenge, right? That, I mean, for me, like, that's been the biggest challenge. Like, like, what does Jesus offer the world that is unique besides some really interesting teachings? What does Jesus actually offer the world? And so this morning, we're going to be pointed towards Jesus is the path, but I want to ask that with a question mark. I, I, here's, a, here's an image that... You've maybe seen something like this before. This is off the internet. I did not draw these creative uh, lines that could be prettier. But when we talk about our world, like like if we're thinking about Jesus as a unique path, a lot of folks have different ways they understand finding God. And uh, we could add a lot of things to this, right? We could add Buddhism to this. Uh, it's a little more unique because it's not necessarily... Um, it's more philosophical than some of the other traditions, although a lot of them still believe in deities and these sorts of things, right? We can add a lot of different sort of ideas to this, ideologies. But this is the graphic I found on the internet, so there's three up there. Um, but, But when we think about what the New Testament has to say about Jesus... There is this element of exclusivity that is very uncomfortable for us in our day and age. It's super uncomfortable. Because we've learned to honor other people. Some of us, I, I think. Don't go on the internet, because then that, that all dies, right? All hope for humanity dies. As soon as you open Facebook, your hope for life and gentleness and kindness towards other humans who are different than you, that, that's all gone. But like, in real-life scenarios, I've found that it's actually possible to, to know people who know things that are different than me, who have ideas about the world that are different than me. They can be any of these things, or they can be a bunch of different other things, and they're all trying to seek something that is kind of like God to them. Here's the unique challenge, is that there is something about some of these philosophies or religions that intersect well together. Like if I were to go to the next slide, right? So, so if that bottom portion, which I don't know why it's such a squibble, right? <laughs> but if that bottom portion represents like the crossover and commonalities between lots of different kinds of worldviews, including the Jesus story, right? Including Christianity. There, there is a lot of overlap. Here's one thing that I've become convinced of. In our culture, we've got to get better at that bottom half. No God, lot of God, Jesus. We could just put different Christian denominations at the bottom and we need to get better at that, Right? How many of you know Christians of different stripes that you're like, I can't stand what they say about this thing. Oh, my gosh, it drives me bonkers, right? We all have that. it, It is what it is, you know? So we could just, like, play the which Christian is right game. But at the bottom, we would find that there are some very important commonalities, wouldn't we? We've got to get better at that baseline. Now, now if we were to extend that out to like, other traditions, other religions, other philosophies, here, here's what we come to find over and over again. Most people in the human race in the 21st century believe that killing other people is not a good idea. Right? Like, 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 there, there's, now, there's scenarios within which we would have conversation about what kind of killing, what is killing. Right? But at the baseline, like, most people are like, yeah, um, killing someone just because is not a good idea. There's a commonality. There's commonality between religions, for instance, that caring for other humans is probably a good idea. There's commonalities of all kinds between all kinds of philosophies that all of us could probably get get together and say, hey, not a bad idea. But there is a point of divergence, and if we were just to use Islam, Christianity, and Hinduism as an example, where... The intersecting really stops. For Christians, we have to ask, is Jesus the path that actually leads us to the mountain where God is? Now, here's where my question comes from. It's really rooted in the passage we're going to be looking at right now. We're going to hear some hard language. We're going to be introduced to Antichrist, which we're going to talk about, which will be fun. Um, But my concern, I think this morning, is kind of twofold. On the one hand, Christianity historically has done a very poor job of hanging out with people who are different than us. We have these things called crusades that we thought were a good idea, for instance, where we wanted to take back like the Holy Land, we use swords for that. Um, we, we, we have like, like problems getting along together. Not only do we have like denominations, but we have denominations that start denominations that start denominations. You know what I mean? Like, like historically, Christians have really struggled at this. So on the one hand, I want to say, like, like as Christians, we've got to learn that even though we're on the Jesus path, we've got to honor other people on other paths. Now, now here's the, the other end of this, though. So. The other end, I think, is that we see so much in common with every other tradition of people trying to be nice and trying to be good and trying to be just in the world that we forget the beauty and the uniqueness of Jesus, Israel's God in the flesh, who rose from the dead to conquer evil and death and destruction, and who's going to come back one day to sort it all out. Like, I think our temptation is to stay at that bottom space nowadays for some of us and just talk about how, oh, we have all this in common, we have all this in common, and eventually we have so much in common that, yeah, Christianity is like my, my kind of like tradition, but there's all kinds of ways to experience life and God and meaning in the world. And I, I just have this really strong sense that God wants more for us than that, that we can be utterly uniquely Christian and utterly uniquely inclusive all at the same time. And I think that's one of the things first John's going to invite us to do. So I want to jump in, and um, I want to jump in at First John. We're at chapter 2. We're going to be in 18 through 27. We're going to talk about sort of some of these themes this morning. And before we do, I want to tell you a story. And and this story, for me, sort of illustrates um, some of what I think John might be getting at. So uh, my kiddo and I, she's in the room. Hi, Lydia. I like your smile. Um, She's not always in the room when I talk, so this is kind of fun. We have this thing we do when we go to daycare. Now, she graduated from daycare about a week ago, a little over a week ago. And Daddy handled that in a very particular way, as you might imagine, very particular way. We'll say it that way. Um, and uh, one of the cool things that we got to do a lot of time is, is we one time were driving and trying to get to our daycare and we got lost. Like I, I was like, oh no, I missed the turn. And so we, we just like took a random turn and magically through this magic turn, we ended up on a path that eventually led us to the backside of her school. And from that day forward, we would talk about going the wrong way. And we went the wrong way almost every day because the wrong way was a cool way. Because if you got to the bottom of the building, you had to take an elevator and you take that elevator up to the floor. And it was just this big adventure for us. And so we would, you know, we'd be at the turn and be like, okay, Lydia, am I going the right way or the wrong way? And 90% of the time, wrong way. And I'm like, okay, oh no, I missed the turn. Where are we? You know, and just play it up. Like we're just lost and lost. And then what would happen? We'd find the building every time. We'd find the building every time. But the path wasn't clean. You know what I mean? Like, the path was, like, disorganized, at least the first time. And so what I want to really just stress as we enter this text is, is I don't think John has in mind that there is a line and you either are within the bounds of that line or you need to get out of the way. There is only one like, way to get there. But at the same time, what I think John is actually doing is illustrating for us that doing life as Christian community is messy, it is challenging. But if the destination isn't Jesus, that's the problem. That's the final problem for John. And so John's going to talk about it with colorful language. This is 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says this, Little children, it is the last hour. Just as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have appeared. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really part of us. If they had been part of us they would have stayed with us but by going out from us they showed that they are all that they all are not part of us But you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth I don't write to you because you don't know the truth but because you know it you know that no lie comes from the truth Who is the liar isn't the person who denies that Jesus is the Christ this person is the antichrist the one who denies the father and the son everyone who denies the father or denies the son does not have the father but the one who confesses the son has the father also as for you what you have heard from the beginning must remain in you If what you heard from the beginning remains in you, you will also remain in relationship to the Son and in the Father. This is the promise that he himself gave us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are attempting to deceive you. As for you, the anointing that you received from him remains on you, and you don't need anyone to teach you the truth. But since his anointing teaches you about all things, it's true and not a lie. Remain in relationship to him just as he taught you. So you can see like the division and the strife and the struggle of this community really trying to figure this thing out, right? They're trying to figure out, like, like, hey, we're in community. We have all of these commonalities. But for some reason, some folks in the community come to a place where they are trying to teach everyone else in the community that Jesus is not the path. And for John and the early Jesus followers, they're like, this is, like, this makes no sense. Everything we've done up to this point has been about Jesus. And so we get this interesting language. We're gonna talk for a moment here about anti-Messiahs, Antichrist. Let's talk about that a little bit because of Nikolai Carpathia, etc. Now, Nikolai Carpathia is the man from Left Behind who is the instigator from somewhere back east of Europe in the Left Behind novels. If you've seen these novels or movies. He becomes the figure that embodies what some folks believe will be the Antichrist. And for John, he really doesn't have any concept of anything like that. John is like simply saying, look, those people who come around here and they talk about like, you can have life and you can have an experience of the divine outside of Jesus. Those are Antichrists for John. People who are trying to say, you don't need God, you don't need Jesus, you don't need the path that has been carved out by a suffering Messiah. You, you don't need any of that. For John in the first century, that's the definition of an Antichrist. And by the way, he's at this point it's like, and we've had a bunch of them, and there's another one coming. It just keeps happening. And, and it's really interesting because. If you have in your mind already some futuristic revelation stuff, and if you have in your mind some other futuristic stuff, and then you come to John, what have you done accidentally by saying, oh, he's talking about something in the future? You've robbed the community that John is talking to of all of the challenges they're actually facing on the ground. Let's not rob them of what they're facing on the ground. As soon as we delegate this language into some distant future ahead of us, we've denied the language that was meant for the people who had this reality right in front of them. And so we, we wrestle with this. Here's what we're not supposed to do with this language either. I don't think John is saying something like this, hey, any person who doesn't believe in Jesus like we believe in Jesus is the Antichrist. That also is an overextension of the language. Because if we grant that what John's doing is talking to a specific community about specific issues and specific conflicts, we can't go around and say, oh, our Muslim neighbor, they're the antichrist because they don't believe in Jesus like we do. You know, like that's, that's, not, that's not what John's getting at either. John's simply saying, like, look, like, like, these folks were part of us. They were breaking bread with us. We were taking communion together. We were serving the poor together. And one day they got it in their mind that, of course, this Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. Of course, this Jesus couldn't be who he said he was because he was executed, for goodness sake. Like, and this is, this, these are the folks in this kind of a community that John's like, yeah, these are anti-Messiah people, anti-Christ people. And isn't it funny that that's all the word really means? Like, like their position, like if you were to think about it politically, right? Let's go back to Obamacare. Remember the big debates about Obamacare? This side was all about it. This side was not all about it. And there's an aisle in between, right? And, and we can imagine that there's like the Christ side and the Antichrist side. Why are they the Antichrist side? Well, they're the Antichrist side. Like, like they just don't believe that Jesus is who Jesus said he was, right? It's not like this supernatural label that we put on them. It's like, um, you know, Pro-Obamacare, anti-Obamacare, right? They just don't believe in Obamacare. This is a community problem, right? So, so for these first century Jesus people, they have a real community problem. And the way they do that is say, you know, there's this party of people that we've decided are best labeled anti because they don't believe in Christ, the Messiah. So this seems to be at the center of the, the controversy. This seems to be at the center of the challenge. has nothing to do with some futuristic thing. By the way, uh, next week we're not gathering because we have a denominational conference. And the following week, the, pretty much the entire talk is going to be about the end timesy stuff that comes out of 1 John. So we're going to have some fun with that. So, so put this over here for now. Notice it's a community issue, not some futuristic issue. And then we'll talk about those things that maybe... Uh, raise the future for us. So what is the issue? Well, again, I think it's the uniqueness of Jesus. And that's what I want to center on for the next five or 10 minutes as we try and sort of sort out this passage and what it might mean for us as followers of Christ in the 21st century. The uniqueness of Jesus. But since his anointing teaches you about all things... It's true and not a lie. Remain in relationship to him just as he taught you. So I think there's a few things that are unique about the uniqueness of Jesus that we even see here in First John so far. Um, I, I love saying John as I see a John. Hi, John. Um, and uh, I, I think one of the things that we notice here is that the uniqueness of Jesus is about a unique relationship. I there was a season in my life where I hated the language of a relationship with Jesus because for me, it often was translated as like this transaction I had one time with God. You know, like I was not on the Jesus team. I said a prayer and then I was on the Jesus team and my relationship was basically the byproduct of a contract that I signed through saying the right words in a prayer. Don't know if that's any of your experience. Now, I think those prayers can be very helpful. I'm so glad I prayed that prayer as a a four-and-a-half-year-old. I I think I I still remember that moment. I think it's beautiful. But what can easily happen, on the one hand, is like relationship becomes a code word for believing the right things about God and feeling good about those things. Yeah? So like I, I believe Jesus is true and light and love. My relationship is I feel good about the things that I believe about God. What I've come to know is that Jesus like, cares about what we believe, but Jesus cares more about like, empowering us as a community and empowering us as individuals to know God. Like, like That we can actually know Jesus. We can actually have a relationship with Jesus. And not the, the fuzzy-feely stuff on the one hand and the intellectual, I have the right ideas on the other hand, but there is this way that when we talk about the path of Jesus, we're actually on a path with Jesus. And it took me a long time to get really comfortable with that. But if you've been here over the last couple of years, you know, like, we aren't ashamed of talking about a relationship with Jesus. But what we're not talking about is a transaction with God. We're talking about a transformative process where we know and follow Jesus. And this changes everything about how we see reality. And for John, it's like, be in that relationship. Be centered in that relationship. And and the problem, I think, with the multiple paths, the multiple routes to God, the multiple ways to God, um, is is we we struggle to figure out how are we going to have that actual relationship outside of some abstract idea that God is somewhere out there. Jesus is the one who actually shows us that that God who maybe we want to put somewhere out there is actually here. It's actually with us. Another unique thing, I think about the uniqueness of Jesus is this unique confidence. I am, I am always touched by some of the stories I hear about people who are followers of Jesus, whatever their tradition, more liberal, more conservative, Catholic, Anabaptist, like us, like whatever tradition they may come from. That as they approach Death, as they approach the later hours of their day, metaphorically speaking. How empowered they seem in that moment. Now, this isn't true of everyone. Every person experiences these things differently, I'm sure. But for my my grandfather, I think of just like, you were walking to death and you had confidence in a weird thing that I still don't quite get. I remember another guy, uh, a famous Christian leader, uh, I think his name was Bill Bright. I remember hearing an interview with him as he was dying, and he goes, you know, my, he, there's this quote, and I can't get it out of my head to this day. This is like 20, uh, 15 years ago. And he said, my, my, my body is degenerating, but my spirit is soaring. And I thought to myself, I want to be the kind of person whose spirit is soaring, no matter what my body might or might not be doing. I think there's this unique confidence that we can have as we go through life, like right now, right today, because one of the problems is we defer this experience of Jesus to the future. But I think this confidence starts right here and right now. Like, Like, how does Jesus empower your normal life? I think John would say that you can have a confidence like stepping into whatever thing you're stepping into, that God is with you, that God is for you. But here's... Here's like my, my last little thing I think that really matters about this. Yes, we have this unique relationship. We can have a unique confidence in, in our experience of God because God is with us and empowering us, but it, it, it calls for a necessary humility. And this is something that I think here at Pangea, in some ways we've really been very intentional about creating space for. We we have always said and will continue to say, we don't care where you are in this Christian spectrum or the not Christian spectrum, we don't care where you are in your spiritual journey. Whether you are, like, unconvinced of Christianity, maybe you like Jesus but don't like the, like, beliefs of some of the spiritually stuff, right? Like, like, you can be anywhere you want to be on that end of the spectrum. And then we always say this little joke, right? And you can be too Christian. Like, you know, you need to, like, kind of come out of the clouds and come back to earth and become, like, a normal human again. And, and you know, we kind of have this, like, big spectrum. And, and we often say, like, wherever you are on the journey, we want to make room for you because Jesus makes room for you. We, at the same time, are very committed to Jesus as the unique God of the universe. That however we get to the top of that hill, it's always gonna be Jesus at the top of that hill. One of the problems is we've lost the vision of Jesus's humility to actually navigate those tensions well. And that, my friends, I I think is heartbreaking. In fact, as I look on social media and I look at different spaces where people interact with each other, different Christian ideas, people that aren't Christian, you know, as I look at my own little blog, like, like years ago, a blog was a place for dialogue. Now I don't even touch the dialogue piece because when I get comments, it's either by angry Christians or angry atheists, right? Like I get these comments out of the blue sometimes. It's just like, you know God isn't real, right, dummy, or something? You know, I'm like, so, okay? <laughs> like, like, what do you, like, why are you here? Is this fun for you? Like, do you just want to, like, tell me that, like, and then on the other hand, I get the King James, all bold caps, you know, you interpreted the Bible wrongly, and there's, like, all kind of things about the Holy Ghost, and, like, leave me alone, dude. Like, like I'm, I love Jesus. Like, it's all good. Like, we can be okay, you know? I think that what Christians today need to model among many other things is the uniqueness of Jesus must lead to the humility of Jesus. That's where I want to land us this morning. The path of radical love. To illustrate this, I'm going to go into John's gospel for a moment. In John chapter 13, there's this dynamic moment And maybe you remember it. Jesus is preparing for his execution. Jesus is ready to go to the cross. And so he's hanging out with his friends, and they're up in this room. They end up calling this place the upper room because it's upper for some reason, right? So it's the upper room, not the one below, right? So we actually have an upper room, but it's moldy, so we don't use it. But the upper room is where all the holy stuff happens, I'm told, right? Right? People fall over with the Holy Ghost and stuff. It's really cool. We just don't go up there because we're not sure if the falling over actually was just mold poisoning. So we just, like, avoid it. But, but like, like upper room, like, in the New Testament is a special place. The early disciples are in this upper room at Pentecost, right? And, and it is this beautiful thing. And Jesus is in this upper space, and they're having Passover together. And he takes the bread, and he says, the bread of the Passover that you've been eating out of your tradition, which is my tradition, we're going to continue this tradition. But eventually, and this is the overtone of this story, right? Some Gentiles are going to be part of this meal, and eventually this thing is going to become called communion. But as this is all happening, Jesus takes a towel, and he wraps it around himself. And he calls each disciple individually, and he takes water and he begins to wash their feet. And he washes each foot. And then he gets to Judas. And in that moment, you would expect he would not wash his feet or call him out or, or do something to delegate like his anger to this person who's about to betray him, about to betray the whole movement, about to betray Israel's God through doing this. And instead, Jesus just simply washes his feet. And what's fascinating is that John 13 tells us that Jesus already knew that Judas would betray him. Jesus already had the information that the person's feet that he is washing is the person who's going to sell him out for money. Like within hours. And he gets down, he washes his feet in humility, in love. Someone who I would say is an enemy. If we were to use a political metaphor, this person becomes an enemy of the Christian state, right? An enemy of the kingdom. This is the person who, uh, it actually says in one passage, Satan entered Judas. And Jesus says, no, no, wherever he might be, whatever he's going to do, his feet get washed too. Radical humility, radical love, radical uniqueness of Jesus. They all have to exist together for John's sort of proof to come through the page. And so I want to just leave us with this question. Because the path is windy, the path is challenging, following Jesus isn't easy, especially when we're trying to navigate humility and uniqueness and love and all these things. But are you enjoying the path, you know what I mean? Like, are you enjoying this path with Jesus? Like, if you are with Jesus and you are trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, like, are you finding joy in that? There's just one other spot in Hebrews where Jesus is described as having joy before he goes to the cross. And I think what that reminds us is that this journey's not easy. I think what that reminds us is that, yeah, there's gonna be parts that aren't enjoyable per se. But what I hope we we learn from John this morning is that following Jesus is something that is unique, that is empowering, that is relationally centered, and that can actually change not just us, not just us together, but can actually change neighborhoods, can change communities, can change the world. One loving act of hospitality and kindness and humility at a time. How this week will we enjoy the path, the unique way of Jesus together? Thank you.